Hey, this is Alan from Praise. So glad that you are checking out this message from our Sunday morning service. We're right in the middle of a series about the Holy Spirit. All we're doing is we're reading about how the Holy Spirit has moved in ages past in order to better understand how he might move today in unique ways where our world might be primed for him to move in our midst. We're calling it the Holy Spirit, rethinking the spirit of our age. Thank you again for checking it out. And I just believe that God's going to move uniquely in your life as a result. God bless. Well, this morning, Elizabeth and I had a little bit of a misunderstanding. Um... um And for a brief period, about a minute and a half, at our house, the heat turned on. (laughs) How many of you turned on the heat this weekend? Yeah, it ain't time for that yet. Come on, it's going to be up to 71 degrees today. This is the time to pull out the warmer blankets. And that's what I was trying to say. But it was misunderstood as, please turn on the heat, honey. And I smelled that, you know, first time the heat runs smell. You know it. And I thought, that ain't right. And so I got that fixed real quick. Um, We did pull out the nice big down comforters. It was hard to get out of bed this morning. And I could tell even when I walked in, I could tell there were some people who were here who were like, I did not want to get out of bed. And there are some people joining online right now that I know (laughs) the problem was you could not get out of bed this morning. It was just a little too warm under those covers, a little too cozy, and a little too cold outside of those covers. Um, And I'm sure I could probably turn that into something spiritual, but that had nothing to do with anything. We pulled out down comforters, put them on. And then Asher says, Asher says, oh man, I'm gonna have to pay him two bucks for this. Uh, (laughs) This morning he goes, he goes, I was so warm last night that I had the ceiling fan on and I was still too hot. And I'm like, what in the world, child? Like that is not normal. I was, I was chilled. Um, thankfully, Larice Shell actually knitted me this really nice blanket, and last night I used that, and it was so nice and warm. And so um, it's good, good. I do love fall. This is the time for me. I love seeing Andrew in a flannel. Come on, somebody. It's flannel time, and it's sweater weather. I mean, this is about as good as it gets. We are into fall. We are also wrapping up or getting close to the wrap-up of our series called The Holy Spirit, um, which we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the tagline on that, rethinking the spirit of our age. We only have a couple of weeks left, and uh, if you've missed some stuff, a lot of the things we're going to talk about today are, are things that are building upon those things that have come before. And so if this is your first time at Praise, so glad you're here. You do need to know this is week 9 of 10. Okay, so like this is, this is some, we, in many ways, we started at the left-hand side of this thing and read to the right-hand side of this thing, so the ways that the Holy Spirit has moved in past ages to figure out how, how would he move today? What would that look like for us? How does that change us and, and affect us and impact us? And so 
Um, Last week in particular, we read from Acts, the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and 2. What we saw there is that Jesus baptized his, his disciples in the Holy Spirit. You can't deny it. That's what Jesus did in that moment. He baptizes them in the Holy Spirit, and it immediately changes them. Peter, the Peter who just recently, before that, when Jesus was arrested, denied Jesus multiple times to, this, to a servant girl who's there because he's so afraid, gets up and probably at the temple, right in front of the temple, preaches to 10,000 or tens of thousands of people who have gathered. And he preaches a fire sermon, the very first Christian sermon ever preached. And it was so good. In fact, we're going to um, just really quickly, briefly kind of start there as we kind of launch out. But as a result of that sermon, thousands are added to the church. And so today we're going to take that a step further in the name of the sermon today, or the title is The Edge of Belonging. The Edge of Belonging. I think there are really three key moments in that sermon that Peter preaches. Right at the beginning, um, right, number one is in chapter 2, verse 16 of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 16, when it says, Know what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. The literal there, and some translations actually go with this literal translation, is that when Peter says, this is what Joel talked about, that the literal is this, this experience, what you just witnessed, is that. This is that. What you are seeing right now is that which Joel talked about. Okay, so if you're wondering what is going on here, this is that. This is a whole new thing. And Jesus hadn't told, at least as far as we know, hey, here's how this is going to go down. When I baptize you in the Holy Spirit, you're going to hear a sound. And then you're going to look and there's going to be flames and there's going to be like wind and you're going to be amazed. And then you're going to start speaking in languages that you do not understand And you were never taught. And then other people are going to hear those things in their own heart language. People from all over the place. He didn't explain any of that to them. And yet when it happens, Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, steps up and says, this is that. He jumps into it without, as far as we can tell, uh, Jesus walking him through it. He preaches a sermon by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 36, you see the response to that. Verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know, or he wraps it up with this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their heart, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? So the same Holy Spirit who gives Peter what to preach also is doing a work on the other side of it, right? Do you see that? Like, so Peter preaches this fire sermon, but it's not the fire sermon that does it. It is the other side of it and the fact that the Holy Spirit is giving Peter the words to speak, but then he is also giving them the ability to 
to hear it and to hear it deeply, the Holy Spirit cuts all the way through their desires, um, their refusal, their denial for whatever it might layer up to protect them or keep them from hearing the truth. The Holy Spirit, it says, pierces all the way through that right to the heart, and all of a sudden they hear the message in all its beauty and all of its glory, and they say, what should we do? So then Peter says, okay, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Buckle up. No, I'm just strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. That's how you know the church didn't begin this day, that it began in John when we talked about Jesus breathing on them. That's where the church began. This is when they are added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. And it's actually because of that phrase right there that we think this probably happened right in front of the temple. Because when we went, we just went, and when we were standing there in front of the temple, they have right there hundreds of little baptismals that were like um, used for as people would come into the temple. It was like a ritual cleansing to make sure if for whatever reason they had allowed themselves to become impure, they could they are unclean, they could go ahead and deal with that before going into the temple. And so where else could you in Jerusalem baptize 3,000 people? That's the only spot. And so most likely he is preaching right in front of the temple, and it's the only place where that many people could have gathered. But this is happening publicly, and the Holy Spirit is working on both sides of it. He is making things happen. And then it continues all the way through the book of Acts. You see the Holy Spirit just work, 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 work. And all the time that he is working, um, there's this really interesting thing that happens. And here is where I need to get to what really kind of started this whole series for me. Because when I was reading in late May, early June, every time in the Bible when the Holy Spirit shows up, um, I was, as I was reading through it, I started noticing something. And I thought, is that really there or not? Is it just something I'm noticing, or is there a real noticeable thing happening? And what I noticed comes down to the English language. I used to hate English. By that I mean writing, reading, all of that. I hated it. I hated it in elementary school. I hated it in middle school. I hated it in high school. For a brief period in there, in high school, I I thought what everybody thinks when they're in high school, they think they're a terrific writer. Right? And the way, yeah, Liz laughs because she knows this. The way people write in high school is you pile up a whole lot of big words and you expect your teacher to be impressed by all the big words you know. And yet you don't actually say anything at all. This is the middle school and high school writing experience. By the time you get to college, hopefully they've beaten that out of you, right? Because real writers can say profound things with very small and very easily understandable words, right? Like, so that's the whole point of learning to write is to not use big, big words and pile them up into big piles that make no sense, a jumble of nonsense, but instead to say really very difficult things in very simple ways, okay? That's English. I hated it. I hated it. 
until I got to college and I took Greek class. When I took Greek, first I had a deeper appreciation for English because that is a much more complex language in some ways. But it also, when I really taking Greek helped me to understand English and how to say things in English in a better way, how to write better. All of that I learned not from English classes, I learned it from Greek. Well, one of the things that you know in English is um, uh, subject, verb, direct object, right? So we're going back to English class. I bounce the ball. The subject is? Good, thank you. The verb is? And the direct object is? Yes. Good job. Now, if you're lost, the direct object is the thing that is having something done to it. The verb is the thing that's being done, and the subject is the thing that is doing the thing, okay? So I am the one who is doing something. I am bouncing the ball, okay? So the ball is having something done to it. I am the one doing it. The verb is what's happening. You guys all got that? Here's what I noticed. As I was reading through the Old Testament, what I noticed was over and over and over, every time the Holy Spirit showed up, he was the subject of the verb. Every time. In the Old Testament, as I was reading, 90, well, actually not every time, 90% of the time. 90, exactly 90% of the time, in fact. 90% of the time. I'm not talking about math. We're just focusing on English here, okay? 90% of the time, the Holy Spirit shows up. He is the subject of the verb. Something is happening. The Holy Spirit is doing it. In the New Testament, that's not the case. In the New Testament, the majority of the time, the Holy Spirit is not the subject. People are. Okay, so let me, let me, let me show you. I made a spreadsheet. <laughs> and I put the times in the, whole te- in the Old Testament, I put where the Holy Spirit is the subject on the left side of the column. Okay, I'm going to show you the Old Testament first. Every time the Holy Spirit is the subject is on the left side, and every time people are the subject, they're on the right side. Okay, so here's the spreadsheet. On the left side is when the Holy Spirit shows up in the Old Testament and he is doing the stuff. On the right side is when people are doing the stuff by the power of the Holy Spirit or whatever. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. Everything or over and over and over again in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit shows up, he is doing stuff. He rushes on people. He departs. He casts. He rests on. He gathers. He enters. He lifts. He did the stuff. In the New Testament, let me show you. Now, you've seen it. I just focused on Luke and Acts because just want to zero in. In Luke and Acts, the people do the stuff. Peter, Stephen, Paul, Barnabas, the disciples do the stuff filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a really big change. Super noticeable. Majority of the time in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit shows up, in Luke and Acts especially, the Holy Spirit is not the subject of the verb. A person is. And they are doing it filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's what's interesting about that. There are still occasions where the Holy Spirit becomes the subject of the verb. In fact... I made you a graph. I went through all of Acts in particular. Here's a graph, right? You're getting spreadsheets and graphs. This is great, right? Like, and English lessons. This is the best day of church ever. I made you a graph. 
And this shows all the way through Acts from 1 through 28, the times when the Holy Spirit becomes the subject. There's really three big moments. One of those is Acts 2, which we read last week. The next is Acts chapter 8. And the third is Acts chapter 10. These are moments where the Holy Spirit takes over. Right? And we just read Acts chapter 2, and you know what happens there. The Holy Spirit baptizes, or they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? Like the Holy Spirit descends, fills, he's doing stuff. And then Peter speaks and shares this message, and people are hearing from all over the world, hearing those believers speak in their own languages. The Holy Spirit bridges this language and cultural gap that has been there going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, whether from Cappadocia or Crete, Arabia or Libya, like if they're a part of the Roman Empire or the Parthian Empire, they hear them in their own language. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. Church takes off and grows. And then there is resistance and persecution back against it, especially with Stephen. Okay, and so here's what I want to do today. Just looking at those spikes, having just read Acts chapter 2 and what happens there, I want to read those other two spikes. And we're not going to be able to read the whole thing because we'll just run out of time, so I'm going to have to kind of like skip little portions, and I'll summarize what I don't read, but I want you to get what happens in Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, and chapter 10 when the Holy Spirit becomes the subject of the verb. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 8 next. Acts chapter 8. And we'll start reading in verse 4. This is right after Stephen is killed with Saul kind of approving. This is the great persecution. Then as a result, people are scattered. That's where we're going to pick up Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Acts 8, verse 4. But the believers were scattered, who were scattered, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So there's this great response to it. There's this guy there named Simon the Sorcerer. We're just summarizing here so I can skip ahead. Um, he's important. Everybody thought he was something. Verse 12, but now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he began following Philip wherever he went. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. So they send Peter and John to go check out what's going on in Samaria because they're hearing some weird things happening. Chapter or verse 15. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. For they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
So this incredible thing happens. Simon the sorcerer decides he wants some of that action. He offers to buy it or the ability. They rebuke him. And so then um, there's this big kind of showdown. And, and, and in this, well, not a showdown, but as a result of that, then um, they head back. So, so Peter and John head back towards Jerusalem. Verse 25, after testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem And they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. I always found it interesting that Peter and John did not preach on the way to Samaria. That they did not stop in any of the villages on the way. But on the way back, having seen this thing happen, they say, Oh, this message is not just for Jewish believers. This is not just for the Jewish people. The message of Jesus is also for Samaritans. And you've heard plenty of times, I am sure, that the Jewish people and the Samaritan people did not like one another. And that went back hundreds, hundreds of years. And so on the way back, though, having seen the Holy Spirit show up and do something, it was undeniable. The message of Jesus Christ is also for the Samaritan people. It applies also to them. Okay, let's skip over to chapter 10 now. We're going to read that other spike in Acts chapter 10. Um, we'll start reading in, in verse 1. Okay, and I'm going to have to summarize a lot of this. This one we really have to kind of skip a rock across and just quickly hit some points, and I'll summarize what happens in between. And you guys will just, just stay with me as good as you can. We are going somewhere. I, I'm like 80% sure. Okay, so Acts chapter 10, verse 1. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the the poor and prayed regularly to God. So this guy Cornelius has an angel appear to him um, and tell him to call for a, a specific person, Simon Peter, in a very specific place. So he sends off those people to go and call on a guy named Simon Peter, whom he's probably never met, in a specific place. Uh, Let's pick back up in verse 9. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And this is why you and I get to eat bacon, praise the Lord. In fact, let's just have a praise break right now for Acts chapter... No, I'm just kidding. I'm... But this is kind of a big moment. Big moment. But it's a big moment for more than just bacon. (laughs) The same vision was repeated three times. And then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. And so uh, he's told to go with them. He does. Um, when he gets there, 
uh, he, he, uh, they tell him about this angel that appeared to Cornelius and told him to send for him. Um, we'll pick up in verse 28. Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Okay? Um, And here, I think we could just go ahead and skip down verse, let's go to verse 33. So I sent, uh, he asks, Cornelius tells him about the angel, that's where it is. Verse 33, so I sent for you at once, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message of the Lord, the message the Lord has given you. Verse 34, then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth uh, with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did through Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He is the one, sorry, um, he is, I skipped. Yeah, and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. So Peter thinks, what in the world is God doing here? First the Samaritans and then now the Gentiles. But he shares the message, the message of Jesus Christ. And what happened and how it happened and what the difference was that it made. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. So Peter, for the first time in his life, perhaps, enters the Gentiles' home. And he shares the message of Jesus. But then it says, he stays for several days. So that means what? He ate there? He slept there? How well do you think he slept that first night? As he's laying in a bed in a Gentile home, as he's resting, do you think it was just like, oh, lights out, man, I'm gone. No, he probably sat there with his eyes open for a long time before he fell asleep, thinking, what is going on now? Lines he had maybe never crossed before are crossed here. Racial boundaries that had been up for generations are torn down right here. In chapter 8, racial boundaries that had been up for hundreds of years were torn down. In in, uh, Acts chapter 10, 
Racial boundaries that had been up for over a thousand years are torn down in chapter 10. And then when they hear about this in Jerusalem, they're like freaking out. They're like, Peter, what in the world are you thinking? Why would you do this? And so Peter goes back and he's like, well, um, let me tell you, Jesus baptized them in the Holy Spirit. So I kind of thought it might be okay to baptize them in water too. (laughs) That's what happens. And so then it says, uh, verse 18 of chapter 11, they're like, oh, Well, when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. So another massive barrier here comes down. Now the message of Jesus Christ is open for the whole world. This changes everything. Okay, so let's take a moment and let's look at the big picture here. Because here is, again, those moments where the Holy Spirit takes over the narrative. He's working all the way through Acts. Did you see how many times, just in the book of Luke and Acts, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, compared to the Old Testament? It's almost exactly the same. Luke and Acts takes a a period of 30 years, okay? All the Old Testament is more than that, (laughs) And yet there's as much of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Luke and Acts as the the Old Testament, or very close, right? So the Holy Spirit's working all the way through Acts, but for the vast majority of that, it says that people are doing things filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But in these specific moments, whereas the Holy Spirit most of the time works through people now, there are these moments where he's like, okay, now it's my turn, (laughs) And in those moments, every time, a barrier comes crashing down. Every time he steps to the center stage, as we've used that language before, every time a racial, a language, a cultural, an ethnic barrier comes crashing down. And how does he do that? He does it. Through Jesus baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. That's the sign. When Pentecostalism first became a thing again. Well, that's not the right way to say it. Because the Holy Spirit, St. Patrick spoke in tongues. Okay, so if, like, when he was ministering in in, um, Ireland, he spoke in tongues. Okay, so this guy was filled with the Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. So it's not like this is all new stuff, but... From the transition of the 1800s to the early 1900s, there was a new thing that happened, and it became called Pentecostalism, right? Pentecostalism. In the early 1900s, late 1800s, I mentioned to you last week was an incredibly racist time, okay? One of the fathers of the Pentecostal movement, many of you know this, was a guy named William Seymour. Seymour was a black man who was ministering in LA. If you want to know um, what this was like, Seymour was not allowed when he was going to Parham School to sit in the classroom with all the other students because he was black. And so he had to sit outside the door and listen in and benefit from the teaching. Okay? So he goes to LA and he starts preaching on this outpouring of the Spirit. And he's preaching to black people and he's preaching to white people. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of them, men and women, white and black, 
And they're worshiping together and they're having this experience together in a highly racist time. Let me share with you some of the newspaper articles titles about the Azusa Street Revival. And this is, this is, well, it's a lot. Okay, here we go. Religious fanaticism creates wild scene. All-night meetings in Azusa Street Church, Negroes and whites give themselves over to strange outbursts of zeal. Whites and blacks mix in a religious frenzy. Disgusting scenes at Azusa Street Church. Crazed girls in arms of black men. Okay, why bring this all up? Because Pentecostal churches ought to be the most racially unified churches around. Now, let's talk about Springfield real quick, because I love Springfield. I do, you know that. The one thing about Springfield is what it is what I call white bread. Like we're white bread. And I, I don't know about you, I like white bread in like grilled cheese sandwiches. I prefer sourdough, but I'll take white bread. But other than that, there is no flavor to white bread. Okay? Springfield is very, very white. Part of the reason why is because of some things that happened during that incredibly racist time in the history of the United States. Okay? We've talked about that before. I'm just saying it happened. But as a result, where I'm from, it is much more racially diverse than Springfield is. But even here, in Springfield, where we are white bread, we ought to be racially unified. But it should look a certain way for Pentecostals. Here's what I mean by that. Unity is Pentecostal when there is diversity. Here's what I mean by that. Because when the Holy Spirit is poured out, he doesn't like erase everybody's cultural and language identity. Instead, he gives the disciples the ability to speak across those barriers. Right? So he doesn't say, okay, now you're all the same. He says, you're totally different, but the power of the Holy Spirit is going to bridge that gap. So unity is not everybody looking all the same. Unity values diversity, values cultural differences, recognizes what makes us different, and bridges the gap in love. In Revelation, who is gathered around the throne? Every tribe and nation and tongue. Well, what does that mean? That means around the throne, somehow your cultural identity is still represented there. If God values your cultural identity enough to preserve that into eternity, don't you think we ought to as well? And then be unified in the midst of it. The Holy Spirit bridges that gap in love, and Pentecostals ought to lead the way. The big question in Seymour's day was, is tongues the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
And just so you know, Parham is the one who answered that question first, which is really what kicked off Pentecostal when he answered that as yes, it is. That question being answered as yes is really a big part of the big push that direction, okay? But recognizing that, knowing that, Seymour said, yes, but. You know what else is? Racial unity. Because the big question in Acts is, what is normative? What is normative? By normative we mean, what are patterns that you see repeated that then says, this is for us as well? That's how we determine that tongues shows up when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we're like, okay, that's a pattern. That means it must be normative. You know what else is? When the Holy Spirit shows up, racial unity. He tears down the barriers that stand in between people. He breaks those things down and says, yes, you are different, but I will bridge the gap between those two things. Like tongues is normative because it happens repeatedly, so is the tearing down of racial boundaries. It seems normative to me. The Holy Spirit shows up. He tears all those things down. When you're young, you want to be the same as everybody else. When you get to be a little older, you recognize that it's in our differences that, boy, there's an incredible beauty and richness and more than that, that there is something valuable in the fact that I am different. In a global society, we should not be intimidated by other cultures. We ought to embrace them and share Christ. And more than that, we should be able to hear from them. Like we should hear from cultures that are not our own. Like one of my issues for me as a person is there are aspects of God's character, who he is and what he is like, that I do not understand from a cultural perspective. Because I grew up in Wisconsin and I moved to Missouri and that's all I got, right? But I'm talking to Tayo Obafemi Ajayi. And we're talking about what it means that Jesus Christ is the firstborn and she starts speaking to that from her cultural perspective. And the richness of my understanding of who Jesus Christ is grows by hearing from her cultural perspective. There are things that cultures other than yours understand about God better than you do. So listen. Because that's what the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to do. To go to and to bridge the gap in order to hear what does that say to me about who God is and what he is like and what he has done for us. We are all the richer for hearing those voices around the throne as well. Let me tell you the problem though. Here's the problem. Over and over and over again, here's what happens. Holy Spirit's poured out. Let's just talk about the early 1900s. Holy Spirit's poured out. All those boundaries just seemed to be broken. Women were a huge part, a huge part of the early Pentecostal movement. And then we kind of just keep falling back into those same slots we've always been in. And we start saying, yes, I know the Holy Spirit's poured out on men and women alike, but man, just men should be in leadership. And the same thing happened with black and white in the early Pentecostal movement, the Holy Spirit's poured out and incredible things were happening in racial unity. And then over time, we all kind of fell back in our slots because it's a lot easier to worship just around people that are just like you. That's what happened at Azusa Street. And that's what happened in the book of Acts too. In Acts chapter 5, 
You have the Jewish, Hebrew Jewish people, and then you have the Greek Jewish people, and they were upset at each other because one of them was getting neglected at the expense of the other, right? So you got the immigrant Jewish people, and then you have those who grew up there and belonged there in their mind or whatever, and as a result, there was tension between the two. This happened in Acts. This is what happens even after the Holy Spirit does an incredible work over and over and over again, which is why Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says what it says. Ephesians 4, I'll start in verse 2, but then I'm going to read verse 3, which is where it's at. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. He doesn't say um, uh, 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 gain unity in the Holy Spirit. What he says is, preserve it. And your version might say something very much like that. Hold on to it. Cling to it. Preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit brings that unity. He bridges the gap. Now it's up to you and to me to make sure that those same gaps don't form again. To make sure those same boundaries don't show up again. That we recognize that there is beauty in understanding that real Pentecostal unity looks like diversity. So what am I saying from all this? The Holy Spirit changed the world. Don't try to change it back. The Holy Spirit is the great unifier. He moves the edge of belonging. Don't try to move it back. Cling to hold to, do not give up on, and recognize the beauty of racial diversity in unity. I am convinced that Pentecostals more than any other should be racially diverse. Seymour believed it, and I did too. Because every time the Holy Spirit takes over the narrative... He tears down a barrier. He said, this was accomplished in Jesus Christ for you. The dividing wall is gone. Now let's make it a reality. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Every time you see the Holy Spirit step to center stage and take the narrative over, every time he is breaking down a barrier. And I believe that is a key piece of what it means to be Pentecostal. Peter said, this is that. And he pointed back to Acts chapter, or to Joel chapter 2. He said, this is that. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Cicely Thomas, just on Thursday, I think it was, the Convoy of Hope building dedication, she shared just a video of people worshiping, I think it was from like 42 nations. And I just, man, I just was, brought me to tears, right? Because this is that. This is that. The whole, the fact that you and I can learn more through another culture and their understanding of who Jesus Christ is and be able to bridge that gap. And the, I believe, maybe heretical, but 
I believe that the Holy Spirit not only gave them the tongues to speak, but gave them, those who listened and heard, the ability to hear. That it was on both sides of the equation, because that's what happens in the sermon. He helps Peter to preach, and then he cuts right to the heart on the back side of it. The Holy Spirit's all the way through the whole thing, working and moving and changing. And so I guess, like, even in this, as we talk about what it looks like truly to be Pentecostal, like, sometimes we can get super limited in what we think this ought to be it, but, but that's it, yes, and all of these other things as well. That the Holy Spirit is the unifier, that he is the one who goes in between and does the work in, on both sides of it and allows you to hear from others their understanding of Christ and hopefully then you grow in your understanding of Christ as well. That's why it's so important. And that's why it's, it's vital that we allow voices beyond just those that are exactly like us to speak into what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because there is a richness that is only available through hearing from those who are different than you. And that is Pentecostal unity. I want to return to... So when we kick this series off, I asked couple of things that you would just take a moment and put them on the shelf. And one of those was, for those who believe this is not for me, those who believe that may be fine for other people, but they believe this is not something that is available to me or something that is for me. And I just want to take that and I want to pick that back up and I want to just ask you to remember what Peter said. This is for you. And for your children and for those who are far away. That there is no barrier that the Holy Spirit cannot tear down. That there is nothing that might separate you that the Holy Spirit cannot bridge. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to just for a bit believe. This is for you too. And then to ask God, please, please, give your good gift to me. Jesus Christ, baptize me in your Holy Spirit.